original ending, which is uh, chapter 16, verse 8. There are additional endings that were added by subsequent scribes and uh, later redactors. But the original ending of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verse 8, ends without an appearance of the bodily uh, re uh, resurrected Christ. In fact, Mark's Gospel ends with an empty tomb and a group of women scattered out of their wits by the uh, command, uh, by the little man who meets them at the tomb. He's not an angel, he's a little man, um, who tells them to go to Galilee. There they will see him. And Mark's Gospel famously ends with the women terrified, running away, saying nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Okay? So, very strange ending to uh, a story of a religious hero. So that's Mark's 16 chapters. And Matthew, as a writer in his context, takes that narrative form and appropriates it. And as I say to my students, he renovates it. He puts a front porch and a back porch on it. Okay? And he blows out some of the rooms and makes them larger. Um, so he does a major renovation work on this story and yet honors it by taking over its primary outline. The life and ministry of Jesus from his baptism in outside of Jerusalem to his ministry in Galilee to his journey to Jerusalem to his arrest in Jerusalem, his passion, and his crucifixion. That's Mark's story. Matthew takes that story and, as I said, builds upon it. So that's the first thing we need to hear about Matthew in hearing him as a uh, re-presenter of the gospel in uh, a justice key. Um, because in taking over Mark's gospel, in even touching that material, 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So that opening program offers tremendous insight to the socio-political tenor of this writing. For Mark to be writing a narrative for his community that announces the beginning of Uangelia, the good news, of the Son of God, is to engage in the rhetoric of the Roman ruler cult of his time. So this is the language of Roman religion, which is essentially the language of patriotism, of what it means to belong uh, as a subject to the empire. And the kind of glue that held all of the Roman Empire's colonies and territories together were local cults of the Roman ruler, where you would engage in rhetoric about the saving message, Uangelion, same term, of the Son of God, the, uh, the uh, source of peace for the world, who brings good news um, to the world. So all of this rhetoric, which we think of now through our narrative gospels as Christian, was in its context deeply Roman and patriotic. So to tell the story of a different ruler, a Jewish uh, messianic leader, who stood up to Rome and challenged Rome in the tenor of the language of the ruler cult was politically subversive indeed. And so any community gathered around this writing and engaged with this writing in that context would know that. And would know that they were being formed as a people alternative to the structures and mechanisms of the empire. So Matthew, as a leader, first and foremost, who appropriates Mark's form, is stepping up to a uh, politically subversive literature, appropriating that and expanding it for his own context. So that would be the first thing I would say about uh, Matthew's act of religious leadership is that he is engaging Mark's form of the narrative gospel, which tells the story of one called the Son of God who is crucified by Rome. And he uh, does that in a way that expands that and contextualizes that more broadly in terms of Israel's sacred story. <clears throat> so um, the final piece of uh, Mark's gospel that Matthew is uh, bold to appropriate is the passion narrative, that uh, crucifixion of Jesus. And in that passion narrative, Mark and through him Matthew are bold to expose not 
tumors in it. Okay. So he is not dead. He is risen. Um, as he told you, he goes before you into Galilee. So this story um, rattles the cage of Roman imperial power and calls out the colonial powers and principalities of Pilate and through Matthew, Herod, and exposes their corruption, delights in exposing their corruption, and uh, also exposes the ultimate futility of their power. Um, so this is a, a tremendously, I mean, we have become inured to these stories. We think of them as natural stories, obvious stories. Um, we think of them as something that kind of came down from heaven in an egg. <laughs> but um, if we understand them critically, they were born and told in communities that risked and embodied thinking about their faith in ways that stood up to and identified and formed themselves over and against the structures of imperial power. Okay? This is a different kind of power that is being articulated through these stories. So Mark really invents that, and that's why he's my favorite. But Matthew does this amazing thing inappropriating Mark and expanding him. So um, that would be number one, that Matthew appropriates the gospel of Mark, a very subversive and political gospel. Let's look at the expansions of Mark, uh, of Mark by Matthew. <clears throat> As I said, one of the metaphors I use is a, of a sort of a home renovation. So putting on a front porch and a back porch. So two of the major ways that the Gospel of Matthew renovates the Gospel of Mark is to expand the story with an infancy narrative. Okay? We've just been through Christmas, so you all were very familiar with the infancy story. In Christian tradition, of course, we meld the two narrative Gospels that have infancy tradition, Luke and Matthew, and we create one major scene, a crash that involves shepherds, which of course come from Luke, and magi, which of course come from Matthew. We put them all in one little space, and that's fine. That's called midrash. It's a it's a it's a great tradition of storytelling. Um, but if we if we attend to Matthew in particular, Matthew tells the story of uh, the birth of Jesus, beginning with this amazing genealogy. Um, and so if we go to that genealogy, um, we see in chapter 1 that uh, Matthew is um, not satisfied with Mark's origin story of Jesus, who becomes son of God at his baptism. That's not enough. 
Mark, who tends to say, as it says in Isaiah, and then he quotes Malachi. Um, Mark is working from memory a lot. He doesn't seem to have scrolls at his disposal. Matthew's got scrolls. So Matthew knows where stuff is and how to reference it. And um, his genealogy is built out of a very uh, technical engagement with Israel's scriptural story around this numerological uh, playfulness, which exegetical uh, scribes in early Judaism at this time uh, just reveled in. Um, so cycles of seven and double cycles of seven adding to 14, 14 generations and 14 generations, with the central figure being David, okay? Because this is a story about the Messiah, an anointed king. And so it's got to touch David. And uh, so, so how Matthew builds this genealogy so it flows to David and from David to Jesus is very important and significant. And where he traces Jesus back to is very significant. And for Matthew, who isn't unique in having a genealogy, Luke has a genealogy as well, but Matthew traces Jesus back to Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 to 4, the beginning of the story of Israel's faith. Abraham, the original Gentile convert who becomes the father of Israel. Okay? Um, Abraham, to whom the blessing was given that he would become the patriarch of the ethne, the nation. A kind of universal vision in Israel's story. Abraham, who is the father of Israel, who bears a blessing for the whole world. Okay? So, to trace Jesus back to Abraham is to claim him as connected to Israel's foundational figure. And that original promise of the one who would be a blessing to the, and the Greek word is ethne, nations. Um, that vision of a universal blessing of the nations is a theme in Israel's scripture that gets picked up in the prophets, in particular by the prophet Isaiah. And it shouldn't surprise us that the prophet Isaiah is a very favorite prophet of the Apostle Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles, to the nations. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for Paul. We would all still be going up to the trees and stuff. So um, Paul creates that movement in this Jewish, early Jewish movement of the Jesus movement that moves out toward the ethnic, to the Gentiles. And Matthew is connected, in some sense, to that theological idea, embracing this idea of Abraham, Israel's father of faith, but playing on this idea of father. 
to the ethne, or blessing to all the ethne, the nations. Because just as Matthew's genealogy begins with that emphasis, his gospel ends in the back porch that Matthew ends, uh, ends with and adds um, in Matthew 28 with this incredible commission. So remember how I said about Mark, in the original ending, there is no um, bodily resurrected Jesus. There's just a promise at the empty tomb uh, that, that his disciples and the women will see him in Galilee. So Matthew's like, that's really not a very good ending. <laughs> you know? I mean, you've got to understand this. This is religious leadership. You would just keep repeating the gospel of Mark if it were adequate, right? So there's something about Mark that isn't adequate. And Matthew is expanding and developing on Mark with his own religious leadership. And this additional story that is only in Matthew's Gospel about the great commission of Jesus to the 11 disciples in Galilee, for him, is the appropriate conclusion. Um, and I'm going to just read that to you. <clears throat> Chapter 28, verse 11, I mean, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So somehow the women who've been told to go and tell got their act together, and some of you heard about it. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all ethnic nations. Exactly. All the men, all the people of the earth. But the technical Greek term there is ethnic. So here you have that connection from the beginning with the Abraham touch to the end with the commission to go to all the nations, all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I have told you. This is another important thing about Matthew's Gospel, is in addition to that front porch and back porch renovation that Matthew does on Mark, he does some interior renovation as well. And that is to turn, I don't know, yeah, this has always been sort of interesting to me, that the great cinematic representations of the story of Jesus follow the Gospel of Matthew. I don't think that was a good idea, cinematically speaking. I think Mark would have been better because there's more action, less talking. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus just gets going, and then he pulls off the side of the road and talks for a couple chapters. This is what 
that are only found in Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. So Matthew adds a lot of extra sayings of Jesus to Mark's outline. And that makes Jesus a lot more preachy and talky. Um, and he adds his own material of Jesus' sayings as well. And when we look at that particular emphasis of the sayings and teachings of Jesus that are uh, singular to Matthew, his particular source, we can see his emphases. Um, one of those emphases, very unfortunately, for the history of Christian interpretation of the gospel text, is a vehement dislike to the Pharisees. So there's an entire chapter in Matthew 23 where Jesus just spits venom at the Pharisees. And it's only in Matthew's Gospel. But for uncritical reflection on the Christian tradition, that makes it sound like Jesus is very anti-Jewish. When in fact, Matthew is Jewish. Pharisees are Jewish, but the Jesus movement is Jewish too. And what this gives evidence to is an intramural religious conflict between the Pharisees and Matthew's version of the Jesus movement in the late first century. But that's been an unfortunate aspect of our interpretive history, something we need to work on. Some of the resource I would recommend to you if you're all interested in that is something I require of all my students. I do require this of all my students. Not getting arrested, but buying a Bible. How crazy is that? <laughs> um, the Jewish Annotated New Testament, which is a remarkable resource for amplifying the Jewish diversity and context of uh, Christian, early Christian literature. So I highly commend it to you. It has really great essays in the back um, that are kind of the state of the question on all elements of early Judaism in the context of the Jesus movement. So if you're interested in this kind of study, this is a great resource. But um, in addition to that anti-Pharisaic rhetoric in Matthew, there is this incredible emphasis on um, the works of justice and righteousness and mercy. And one of those uh, same sources <clears throat> in Matthew's Gospel that I think is familiar to all of us is the final judgment in Matthew 25. So in Matthew's structure, he adds three discourse units to Mark's two, creating five discourse units. And some scholars have talked about the symbolic power of that, that that might be tantamount to five Torah books. So in a sense, the teaching of the Gospel of Matthew is for Israel, the new Torah. Okay? Um, so in a sense, uh, this is the final of those five. And the end of that final fifth discourse unit, um, I do not think it is insignificant, ends with the powerful teaching from Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is only found in Matthew, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne in his glory, and 
that separates sheep from goats. And the sheep he will put in his right hand and the goats to his left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom, the empire, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry? Don't you love this part of the story? They don't even know. <laughs> okay? When was it that you saw, we saw you hungry and gave you food and thirsty and gave you something to drink? And that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you? Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. So this call to acts of justice and mercy and righteousness, of compassion for people, is the final teaching of Jesus, um, who at the end of the gospel is saying, go out to all the nations and do everything I have taught you. So the last thing we hear in our ears ringing from Jesus is this call to acts of mercy and compassion and justice and righteousness. And so Matthew's gospel in many ways builds that out and uh, structures that um, through the addition of these new sources and his emphases. So I wanted to uh, engage you all in um, just a little exercise of reading together. Uh, we can do this at our tables, and I think there are Bibles at your tables. And I'm asking you to gather around a text. Um, this is a text that should be extremely familiar to you. Um, but I also want you to let it be strange uh, for the way it is represented in Matthew. This particular text, of all the Matthew sources, is one of Matthew's additions to Mark. You will not see this text in Mark. It's only in, in Matthew and Luke. So it likely comes from that collection of early Christian education curriculum uh, known as Source Q. And uh, it is a prayer, which we call the Lord's Prayer. A deeply Jewish prayer in the form of an 